Well, good morning, City Light Council of Bluffs. How are you guys doing this morning? Good? Awesome. Well, it's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, like Eric said, my name is Phil Robinson. I'm one of the pastors at City Light Midtown, and I serve as the family and student pastor, help give leadership to missions as well. Um, and so Chris Ruska is one of the lead pastors. He realized that I have a wife and four kids, and so he said that was good enough to hire me on as a family pastor. <laughs> um, just kidding. But I do, I do have four daughters. I'm surrounded by women. Um, I always say that I live in a sorority, because I do. So you can pray for me on that. <laughs> um, but we moved up to Omaha about 11 months ago to join in this movement, this movement where God is at work. Disciples are being made and churches are being planted, and it's been incredible to see the things that God is doing. And it's been a great privilege to get to know your pastors, Doug and Eric, and I've just been so encouraged by their leadership, their willingness to take steps of faith, um, and just go for it, to take massive steps of faith and look at what God is doing. It's, a, it's amazing. He's doing a work here in Council Bluff. So I'm so encouraged by that. And so I really, I counted a privilege to be with you this morning to bring the word from the Gospel of John. So if you guys have your Bibles, please open them up to John chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 1 through 39, verses 1 through 39. And as you open up your Bibles, I want to share a quick story. Uh, you know, it's summertime, everybody's traveling, taking trips, and I took a trip of my own at the end of May with my brother and uncle, and we went to Colorado to go on this backcountry ski trip to climb a 14,000-foot peak and then ski down it. And I grew up in Colorado. I lived there till I was nine, and I climbed my first uh, 14,000-foot peak when I was 10 years old. And so we thought it would be a good idea to 23 years later to go and climb the same mountain together but this time we wanted to make it a little more difficult, so we skied up and skied down with 50-pound packs on. And so we get to the summit, and we're skiing down, and it's hard. I mean, it was tiring, exhausting. We were thirsty. All three of us ran out of water, and we're all asking each other, do you guys have any water? I'm so thirsty. I'm so thirsty. And we get down to uh, the mouth of this creek, and we had, to, we had a decision to make. We had two options. Either we boil the water— to completely purify it, or we just drink it straight out of the stream, um, a stream that could be infested with parasites. We didn't know. But we took the risk. We were thirsty. I remember wrestling through this. Like, I don't know. I'm so thirsty. I don't care. I'm going for it. I fill up the camelback, and we were fine. I would not recommend doing that. But the point of this story is that we were thirsty. We were thirsty. And Jesus is going to address the basic of the basic of all human functions in this passage. And it's simple. We are all thirsty. We need water. Our physical bodies cannot go without water. And that's the reality. Every day we're thirsting for something, and we're going to find something that is going to satisfy our thirst. Some of you woke up this morning, and you had a cup of coffee, and then two, three, four, five, I don't know. And some of you need a cup of coffee this morning. But every day, every every day, there will be times throughout the day where you get thirsty. And you, you experience that thirst, and then you go and you find something to drink to quench that thirst. And as we look at the text today, Jesus helps us see that we are more than just physical bodies who are thirsty. We are created by God, and we have real souls who are thirsting to be loved, to be known, to have purpose and meaning and satisfaction in this life. And Jesus is going to look out over a crowd of people, and he's going to say, in the same way that your body thirsts, your soul 
is thirsty. In the same way that your body can't go without water, your soul cannot go without God. But the truth is we often try to find something other than Jesus to quench our thirst. Am I right? And my fear is that many of us are drinking deeply from the things of this world. And we're still wondering, why am I not satisfied? Why do I still feel empty? Why do I feel dry? And so a question I want to ask all of us to ask ourselves is this. What are you trying to quench your spiritual thirst with? What are you trying to quench your spiritual thirst with? Now, Jesus ends this passage with this invitation that Eric just read. But before we see that, we see Jesus journey into Jerusalem and journey into the temple where he begins to teach to a number of people who are spiritually thirsty, but they don't recognize that Jesus is the answer. And as we go through this passage, I want to look at three scenes, three scenes, and, and we're going to see Jesus face opposition and challenges, but we're going to see this incredible invitation that he gives. So number one, scene one, is Jesus and his critics. Number one, Jesus and his critics. Have you guys ever uh, received some unsolicited advice before? Like maybe it was from a family member telling you, hey, you need to do this better. You need to figure this out. Your parenting choices are not that great. Like this is actually how you should be doing it. We all have those people in our lives, right? It could be a family member or a friend, and maybe they have good intentions, uh, or maybe they don't, but what happens is they oftentimes become your critic. And Jesus can relate to this because this is what happens in this passage. His brothers are with him, and they're telling him, hey, you need to go up to Jerusalem, and you need to make a name for yourself. They've seen Jesus grow up. They saw him work as a carpenter. They saw him begin his ministry to start to gather large crowds and to work miracles. But they're his critics in this passage. In the previous passage in chapter 6, Jesus laid down some pretty hard teachings. And the disciples, uh, they, they left. They were challenged And even the the closest disciples were challenged. And so the large crowds are gone. His brothers realize that. And they see an opportunity here. And they jump in and offer him some advice. Before we see that dialogue, let's read verses 1 and 2. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feasts of booths was at hand. And as we look at this context of the passage, Jesus' fan club had just left him. And the religious leaders are looking for opportunities to continue to try to trap him with hard questions, to arrest him, and to ultimately kill him. And John tells us that it's time for the Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles. And at first glance, I think for anybody reading the Bible, it would be so easy to just simply gloss over this and say, well, I can just read past that. Okay, Jesus is the, you know, he's, he says, come to me and drink. But this is really important. You know, there's some significance in that. And John includes it here in the Bible because it is significant. So we just can't read over it. This celebration is really going to set up the entire chapter. And so let me explain why this is important. The Feast of Booths took place in Jerusalem in October when the harvest had been gathered. And it's a time of celebration. This is a week-long party, seven days of gathering, celebrating, remembering. So imagine thousands of people flooding into the city. It's like a big festival. And they're saying, okay, we're going into the city. We're going to spend seven days there. It's going to be awesome. But it's more than just a festival. It has theological weight to it. 
And the reason that it was called the Feast of Booths was because the people that traveled to Jerusalem, they set up these tent-like structures, and they lived in them for the entire week. And what it represented, they did it to remember that the the booths that they set up were very similar to the ones that their ancestors used when they were wandering in the desert for 40 years after they had been freed from slavery out of Egypt. And this was intentional. This was the way God's people took a week to remember all that God had done for them. He took a group of wanderers from the desert and he promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. He gave them land, he gave them homes, and he said, you are my people And additionally, this is really important, each day, every single day of that festival, the people would witness a water ceremony where the the pitcher of water was poured out over the sacrificial altar. And it has rich meaning that reminded them that God brought water from the rock in the desert to quench their thirst. And here water was flowing from that rock. It's It's a vision of water, life giving water flowing from God's life-giving temple. Do you see the connection here? God was faithful to satisfy their thirst, and now you can see why this is so significant and how Jesus is going to connect the dots. But let's jump back into this dialogue with Jesus and his brothers. You know, as this celebration is approaching, Jesus' brothers, again, they see an opportunity to say, you can be famous again, you can get the crowds back. Look at verses 3 through 6. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. So remember, Jesus had a massive crowd in John chapter six, but then he preached some really hard messages and the people went home. They weren't satisfied. They really liked the works of Jesus. They really liked the benefits of being around Jesus, but they didn't want the real Jesus. But Jesus knew that his mission was not just to simply gather a crowd or to be popular, but that's what his brothers wanted. They preferred the popular Jesus. They wanted to be around the one that could gather the large crowd and be influential. And that's why they tell him, bro, you gotta get up to this festival you got to go up here. This is your opportunity. This is your moment to make your big appearance, to go do your thing, work some miracles. And it's going to be amazing. And then the whole world will know. But the tone here is not them asking Jesus what to do. They're telling him what to do because they have an alternative motive. And Jesus understands his mission. He says, listen, my time has not yet come. He's referring to the time where he's going to go to the cross and he's going to pay the penalty for our sin. He's going to die in our place. Jesus understood what God had sent him to do, to be a sin substitute, not just to be a popular person that works miracles. And what's astounding about these verses is that the the brothers are telling him what to do, but they, they don't even believe in him. They don't even believe. And they understand, well, yeah, you're part of the family. You're a good brother, a good teacher, Good moral teacher, you even work some miracles, but you are not the Messiah. You're not the one that was sent to take away the sins of the world. And this should be a warning for all of us, that even the people that are most familiar with Jesus, even the ones who have observed him feed the 5,000 and heal the lame, even the ones who have seen him speak with authority, they're blind to his divinity. 
And that's the reality. Anybody can know Jesus. You can have knowledge about Jesus. You can understand some Bible verses. You can be a fan of Jesus, root him on and say, yes, he's a good teacher. He has some good moral things to say. But none of that gives you saving faith in Jesus Christ. We have to ask that question this morning. Is that us? Are we just playing a religious game, swimming in the waters of Christianity, but we've never actually drank from the life-giving waters in the person and work of Jesus Christ? And if that's you today, if you've never acknowledged Jesus as your Savior and Lord, God and King, if you've never trusted him to come into your life, to forgive you of your sins, to give you eternal life, my plea for you today is will you trust in him? Don't settle for anything less. There's nothing greater that you can do to in, instead of, except entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't just be familiar with him. Don't become critical of him, but believe in him and trust him as your Lord and Savior. Amen. And I look, you know, I look at Jesus' brothers, and if I'm honest, I'm like, you know, what is wrong with these guys? They were Jesus' brothers, and they didn't believe in him. They just wanted to be around him because he was famous, because he was influential, because he was a somebody. But how many of us have that same desire? How many of us just want to be a somebody? We want to be around a somebody because that's going to advance our status. And listen, that's not necessarily a bad desire, but outside of resting in who we are in Christ, outside of who God says we are, it's really a dangerous game to play. That, to say, you know, I, I can only spend time with a certain type of people. I only want to spend time with the people that would advance my status. And it's the wrong motive, and this is the motive that Jesus' brothers had. And the only way to be free from playing this significance game is to believe the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not only was he the ultimate somebody, but he is in the business of loving the nobody. And he paid the ultimate price on the cross so that you could spend eternity with him. And that offer is made available to anyone who will receive it. And Jesus is saying, come to me and drink. You're invited. Come and drink. Let's move on to the next scene where Jesus is going to have another encounter with some thirsty people. But again, they're going to do the same thing. They don't recognize that Jesus is the only one that can truly satisfy. And Jesus tells his brothers, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to go up to that festival, to that feast yet. But you guys go ahead. And then he comes up in secret. And in the middle of the feast, he walks into the temple and he begins to teach. This is scene two, Jesus and his skeptics. Jesus and his skeptics. Jesus is not going up to the feast to appease his brother's desires. He's going to preach the good news about himself. But he's met with stark skepticism and resistance from the leaders. Look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? See, at the very beginning of the feast, they expected him to be there. And they were looking for opportunities to trap him, to arrest him, to pin him down. Their focus was not on God. They weren't there to worship God and to recognize God's faithfulness and his goodness. They were there to make sure that more people were not exposed to the teachings of Jesus. And the religious leaders are upset. They're still upset that he healed the blind man on the Sabbath. And they're more upset that Jesus is claiming 
to be the very son of God. But Jesus doesn't just walk into the temple and show up and make a presence. He, he walks into the very focal point of the entire week of that celebration. And he starts teaching. And this is how the people respond in verse 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? People marveled at his teaching because he spoke with authority. They noticed the power in his words. And we don't know exactly what he taught that day, but we know that it caused people to marvel. It caused them to question. They're basically asking, wait, where did you go to school? Where did you get all this knowledge? How is it possible that you could speak to us like this? Because in this context, to be a rabbi or a teacher, you would have spent several years going to the top schools, studying in the top schools, spending time with teachers and mentors and getting training. And after you graduate, then you would have some credibility. Then you would have some authority to teach. But Jesus' response shows that the issue is not his formal training, but rather his spiritual authority. And so the question to Jesus, Jesus, who's your teacher? Where did you learn? And look at how Jesus responds in verse 16. Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. What Jesus is saying, saying, listen, my training did not come from some theological training center. And my teacher was not someone with a PhD. I speak on the authority of my father who sent me. You guys have your prestigious awards and religious status. My authority is from above. It's from heaven. So not only is his authority questioned and a barrier for these skeptics, but they're also questioning his origins. And this is how Jesus speaks into that in verses 27 through 30. But we know where this man comes from, and when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And so there was this unbiblical myth uh, circulating around the religious leaders that they believed that the Messiah was just going to instantly appear from heaven. And so that's why they're skeptical to this. They're questioning his origins, and they're making accusations against him. They're saying, you're saying you're God in the flesh? You can't be. You're the son of Mary and Joseph from Nazareth. You have an ordinary background, no education, and can't possibly be the Messiah. But the truth of the scripture is it said the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, and he was. Yes, he grew up in Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem. And the Bible says that the promised Messiah would come from the line of David. But the religious leaders didn't want to do their homework. They didn't want to trace Jesus' lineage back to the line of David. They didn't want the truth about Jesus. They simply wanted to create confusion and raise questions about Jesus. And again, it's, it's easy to look at the religious leaders and say, what's wrong with these guys? Like, they're so dumb. That's, you know, they're trying to create skepticism among the people, trying to stop Jesus in his tracks. And the very God of the universe is standing right in front of them, and they're trying to kill him. But this gives us a clear picture of what thirsty men can do when they're drinking from the wrong wells. They're drinking from the religious systems, trying to protect that and missing the very one who gave his life for them. 
The good news is that Jesus came for them. He came for the critic, the skeptic, the mocker, the ones who are the very enemies of God. Romans 5, 8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were questioning God, mocking him, running away from him, he came and died in our place. God showed his love for us through Jesus. And here Jesus is marching through these difficult conversations. He's And he's experiencing challenges and opposition. He's marching through these conversations filled with people who are broken and thirsty. And he's waiting to give an incredible invitation so those people can be satisfied. And that leads us to scene three. On the last day of the feast, scene three, Jesus' scandalous invitation. You know, one of the elements of this celebration was the booths, the tents they built to remind them of the time they were wandering in the desert. But the other really important element of this feast is water. It's water. And I did not realize this connection until I did my homework, until I was in the commentaries. Each day, each day of the feast, again, the priest would take a large golden pitcher of water and pour it over the sacrificial altar, symbolizing how God had provided water for the Israelites in the desert. And they could look back and they could remember that God quenched their thirst. And it's it's an amazing picture of God's provision. And now God has provided his son, Jesus Christ, to be the bread and water, the only one who can satisfy our souls. And we can't miss this. This happened for seven days straight. And on the last day that Jesus got up and he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. On that last day, This water ceremony, it was performed seven times. So it was very clear what Jesus was doing when he stood up and gave that invitation. Jesus gives a declaration of good news that he is the better drink. And he's pointing to a future reality when the Holy Spirit will be given to all who come to him and drink. That the very God of the universe will take up residence in the life of the Christian. And it will be all satisfying so that rivers of living water will flow from within. The physical water that was being poured out on the sacrificial altar in the temple is a metaphor pointing to the living water poured out through the sacrificial lamb. And that offer is made available to anyone who will receive it. And listen, the question I have for you, same question I began this message with, is what wells are you drinking from? Are you trying to satisfy your thirst by going to the things of this world? Are you looking for significance in other people in relationships and trying to use people to get ahead? Are you drinking from the wells of sexual sin, pornography, and lust? Are you drinking from the wells of success and money, position, and power? Are you drinking from self-image, Are you hanging on to religious traditions thinking that you're gonna find life in them? You can fill in the blank. And I want you to wrestle with that this morning. We are bombarded by our culture to run after these things. We are told that we're gonna find life in them. And listen, God knows where you're at. He knows your heart this morning. And the reality is we all have these tendencies, this natural tendency to run after those things, to try to quench our thirst. And that's why the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter five, he gives this warning. He says, look, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, 
making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. In other words, come to Jesus and drink and be filled. Be filled with the very presence of God. And I grew up in the church my whole life. And if I'm honest with you guys, I had no idea what this meant. I did not understand what it meant to live the spirit-filled life. And I, was, I went wandering to all these different places to try and quench this thirst. And I'm just going to be very honest with you guys right now. You know, I was, I was exposed to pornography when I was seven years old. And I would not hope that on anybody. Um, but my dad left. He was out of my life when I was seven. I had no instruction on this. I found myself turning to this over and over and over again. I was trying to satisfy something inside of me, and it just turned into an addiction all the way through high school. And it wasn't until I was in college that I started to study the scriptures and understand some of these truths that my life began to change, and I was freed from that addiction. It was a false satisfaction that I kept turning to, but it was never going to quench my thirst. And as my life began to change in college, I started to get a glimpse and understand what this living water was inside of me that Jesus had promised. But even after experiencing that, I would still, you know, be tempted to turn to the things of this world. Right out of college, I got my degree in engineering, started working in Houston, Texas, in the oil and gas industry. And I quickly became consumed with climbing the corporate ladder of success, of making more money, and I was drinking of that well. And after getting a sense of God calling me into to full-time ministry to college students, it was It was a period of several months that God had to break me down to reveal that sin in my life. I was drinking of success. I was striving after wealth and achievement and running to those things over and over again. And it wasn't working. It was not working. And Jesus had to reveal that to me. And I had to turn. I had to repent, to turn from my sin and turn to Jesus once again to satisfy my soul. Now listen, those weren't bad desires for success and achievement. But that became my well that I ran to over and over again. See, even the good things of this world, we can run to those things instead of Jesus. They become idols in our lives, and we think they're going to satisfy us, and they don't. Listen, how t- listen to how Tim Keller puts it. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart, an imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Jesus' critics and skeptics They were worshiping something other than Jesus Christ. They were worshiping their own self-worth and significance. They were worshiping religious traditions and their methods. And yet Jesus gives this amazing invitation in verses 37 through 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice what he says, if 
anyone, anyone. This invitation is for the critic, for the skeptic, for the Jew, for the Gentile. It's made available to everyone. No one is too far gone. No one is out of the reach of God. If anyone is thirsty, Jesus says, let him come. Let him come to me and drink and experience a life full of joy and meaning and purpose and satisfaction, one that is marked with eternal life and forgiveness and a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that we are called the very sons and daughters of the King. Amen. Christian, this invitation that Jesus gives is not just a one-time invitation. It's not a one and done, but it's an ongoing, continual invitation to drink from the one who satisfies, to live the spirit-filled life moment by moment, rivers of living water flowing from within. And the reality is we never stop thirsting. We don't stop thirsting physically in this life, and we don't stop thirsting spiritually. And I believe that God intended that so we would always be thirsting for more of him, to be filled up with him. And yes, we trust him for salvation, and that is secure, and it's sealed by the Holy Spirit, but it's an ongoing drink that we take to be filled, to live in step with the Holy Spirit. Church, do you long for that? Do you long to be a church that's marked by rivers of living water? A church that is drinking deeply of Jesus and one that is deeply satisfied in him and him alone. And maybe for some of you in this room, If you're honest with yourself, you've never taken that drink. You've never taken that drink. Listen, you can come to Jesus today. He says, come. Would you come to him? Would you trust in him? Would you give your life to Jesus Christ? Would you make him the Lord and Savior and leader of your life? He will satisfy you, and he will give you a desire for more of him.